0: Better way to do this Let me show you a better way
1: hi folks this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the survival podcast As always one man 's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don 't today is April the fifteenth two thousand sixteen and this is episode seventeen sixty seven of the survival podcast. And, of course, this is the Monster Show of the Week, the Listener Council Show, or I should say the Expert Council Show, where the Expert Council members uh, answer your questions. This finishes off all the questions I have for the Expert Council. So I have a clean docket for next week, so get your questions in for the Council. Uh, I really could use more questions for Michael and Sue LaPraise. I could use more questions for Tim Glantz and some questions for Stephen Harris. Those are places I really need some more questions right now, so get them in. I think I can use some for Ben Fault. Too. Something tells me that I gotta put together their document, get all their questions to them by Monday for the next coming month of shows. So it would be a good time to get your questions in for the expert council. Just send an email to TSP, I'm sorry, to Jack at the survival com and put TSPC expert in the subject line. Tell me which council member your questions for. Please, in general, send me a question for a single council member. If I want to divide it up or bring a different council member in, I'll make that call. Tell me which council member you would most like to answer your question for you. So what are we going to talk about today? Well, Stephen Harris is here. We, we had uh, Steve missing for quite a while due to some personal issues, but uh, he's back. And added, again, he's got some uh, really great advice for us about the ins and outs of cell phone chargers and how many you really need uh, to make sure that you're always prepared. I mean, our phones have become such an integral part of our lives, and gaining information during a disaster can often be accomplished with a phone when it can't be accomplished any other way, not to mention it's our primary means of communication. Also, for those who use the Zello channels uh, for TSP, it's a great way to connect with other people. It's like ham radio without a ham license or a ham radio. It really is. And there's a lot of great options and things that we can do with our phone. If we can keep them running, if we can't keep them running, then they are pretty useless to us. What about dealing with dandruff? I mean... Does that sound like a survival topic? I don't know that it's a survival topic, but I'll tell you what it is. Dealing with dandruff naturally. Learning how to use natural remedies on things that aren't that big a deal like dandruff so that you begin that process. Erica Strauss is going to give us some advice on that today for a listener who wants to know how to do that without using stinky shampoo like, let's say, head and shoulders. Uh, next up. Oh, by the way, what do you think's in that stuff? Have you read the ingredients on a shampoo bottle? Survival? Yeah. Yeah, staying healthy is a big part of survival. Uh, Next up, though, on staying healthy, what about staph infections? Staph infections can be a real serious problem, and we have a listener who's dealt with them uh, repeatedly in their child, and they've tried natural remedies. So now they're turning to Doc Bones and saying, you know, antibiotics are all that's worked, so what do we do in the future? It seems like this kid has a susceptibility to a particular variety of staph. So we're going to learn all about that, and that is a critical critical thing to know about the prevention of and the treatment of. If you ever end up in a really bad situation, that's something that can really cause a lot of problems, and it's something that if you're going to be going into a hospital and you're going to be going through surgeries and things, there's more people that die from secondary infections in hospitals than to die die from the reason they went there in the first place. Okay, so this is an important, important topic. Gary Collins has another question that he's going to hit a home run out of the park with in answering for us on intermittent fasting, and it's one of the least understood ways that we can improve our health, trigger weight loss, and live in the primal paleo way. Intermittent fasting is where we don't fast for days. We fast for long hours, and then we eat, and then we fast for long hours again. Just like our paleo ancestors may have when they were traveling as hunter-gatherers and had to go long times in between eating. Or only having small amounts during those times until the next kill, catch, or find. Okay? Uh, next up, we're gonna talk about planting in a leach field. I've answered this question so many times. I'm glad somebody asked it of Ben Falk. He's gonna talk about what can you plant in your leach field or your septic drain field, depending on where you're in the country, you might call it one or the other. Uh, but I'll, I'll listen, we'll listen to Ben's together, and I have some thoughts on that too that I'll weigh in with on, you know, what not to do. And what not to worry about as well. Uh, and then I have a question that I'm going to take for you guys on Jerusalem artichokes or sun chokes. I've talked about those a lot lately, and it's basically they taste good, but they have this effect that I don't like and my family really doesn't like, so they won't eat them anymore, and that effect is, well, gas. So much so that some people call them fartichokes. Is there anything you can do about that? I've got two pieces of advice, and one is really cool, and I'll give you an article to check out on that as well when I cover that. And then a little thing at the end that I've got for you guys today. Those of you that do, this will be like a two-minute segment, but those of you that do marketing on Facebook and have your own pages and things like that, and you post something, and it doesn't work right, it gets all screwed up, and you can't get it to work, and Facebook is the worst thing ever when it happens, and it won't stop being messed up, I'm going to tell you how to fix it. I'm going to tell you how to fix it with a simple tool that I don't think very many people know about. I found it because I got tired of that, posting an episode or a story or something on Facebook, and it's all jarbled up, and it grabs the wrong images, or it just looks stupid, it doesn't work right, and then there's no sense in sharing it because since it looks like crap, nobody's going to really pay attention to it. Yeah, I'll tell you how to fix it. So easy. And uh, some of you won't care, but those of you that do marketing on Facebook, you're going to love me for this one. So that's what I've got today. I've also got a great song for you at the end of the show and a funny story that involves my wife and uh, me and my son and our multiple trips to Arkansas before we made that our permanent residence for a period of time that I think you'll enjoy a funny story to start off your weekend with. So with all that, let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode and get some historical context. Uh, 1767, I have the War of of the Regulation. I also have Charles Townsend and the Art of Misgovernment, and I have the first solar oven. These are all great. I'm going to read the first one because I couldn't make a decision. Decided I'll just go with the first one. Is the one I read today. A vigilante group called the Regulators is bringing justice to the brigands in the woods of North and South Carolina, but it soon turns ugly. Here's how it starts. Indian attacks have left people homeless. They take up hunting to feed themselves, but they are leaving carcasses around and rotting meat is attracting predators. They hunt at night, setting fires to frighten the deer, but now livestock are missing. Hey, a cow looks like a deer in the dark, right? They have taken up robbery, torturing homeowners to reveal their hiding places for valuables. One farmer has his toes burned off. By any definition, these people are brigands. Corruption is rampant in the Carolinas, so asking for help from the local sheriff is out of the question. The sheriff's the guy who collects your taxes and then often loses the payment record and returns to collect your taxes again. So who do you call? The regulators. They're a mixed bag of good and bad. Many of them will become justice of the peace in later years, but for now they are dispensing justice, usually beatings, really severe beatings, and occasional house burnings. So the brigands organize to fight the regulators. It's getting real. They drag James Mason, a regulator, from his home. His body is found 80 miles away. Now it's war. My take by Alex Strug that puts these together for us at TSP Wiki. Backwoods justice is not new. Why mention this? Well, you have a group of men organized like an armed police force and willing to do violence when they see injustice. There is government corruption that is so bad that they look at the sheriff as he is one of the brigands. On top of it... On top of it, and to top it off, the few judges they have working in collusion with the sheriffs. So, when the British governor goes overboard and taxes the colonists using the same corrupt system of sheriffs and judges, what do you think a group of organized armed men are going to do? In 1771, the Battle of Almonds may well have been the first shots taken in anger against the British. It was just going to be a show of force to frighten the British governor. He was frightened, all right. Bang, bang, bang. The locals still call it the first shots of the American Revolution, and a plaque marks the spot where six regulators were hanged by the British for their insolence. It reads in part, quote, Our blood will be as good seed in good ground that will soon produce 100-fold, end quote. James Pugh, under the gallows at Hillsborough, North Carolina, June 9, 1771. So Rothan and taught at Lexington Green was the first shots of the revolution. But here we have a contender that maybe the first shots of the revolution were actually in 1771, with the seeds beginning in 1767. I really want to kind of point out the difference in how a man faced death at this time, though. Our blood will be as good seed and good ground that will soon produce 100-fold. Well, given there were six hung... It produced way more than a hundredfold. It produced way more than a thousandfold. I believe it was 18,000 men in total fought the American Revolution. And that was quite forward-looking and a hell of a way to look at death. And I also kind of would point out here that people look at stuff like this and they say, see, this is why you have to have government. Government government caused this. Government caused this because... The thieves were in collusion with the government. So it took horrible tactics to offset the thieves. The more things change, the more they stay the same. With that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, have you ever thought about making a knife from scratch but just felt it was too complicated? Well, at KnifeKits.com, anyone can learn to make great knives, even me. From the total newbie to the master bladesmith, they have everything you need to make great knives, Kydex sheets, and more. Find it all at KnifeKits.com. You know, I use a Berkey water filter in my home, and I have for over six years now. It's important to me to have the best quality water, but it's also important for me to get great service, pricing, and support which is why I only deal with one source. That's Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, one of the top dealers of Berkey in the world with customer service that will blow you away. Learn more at directive21.com. Again, directive, and then the is two, one is uh, 21.com. Before we get to your first call, I want to let you guys or your first question for a council member. I do want to remind you guys that the PermaEthos plant propagation course that normally sells for three hundred and fifty dollars, uh, run by Nick Ferguson, is currently on sale for the entire month of April for two hundred and fifty dollars. There's a link in the show notes for a post about that today. Uh, we are halfway through the month. If you want to take that course this year, I'd recommend you do it. While it's on sale, we will not be putting it back on sale again. Uh, and if you want to develop that skill for personal propagation or for starting a business, I can't give you a better resource. This is a, a course that literally will, the first time you do a, a propagation of, of just about anything, pay for itself in savings or in profitability, being able to sell those plants to your friends, neighbors, and you know, as, as big as you want to build it or as small as you want it to be. With that, let's hear from somebody we haven't heard from a while, Stephen Harris the guy when it comes to all things energy and engineering, about cell phone chargers. How many do I really need? What do I really need? And what can, what do I know will work when I need it? Steve, take it away.
2: Darius from Louisville, Kentucky. This is Steve Harris with the expert panel calling in to answer your question. Darius wrote to me and said, Steve, I bought and devoured your video on cell phones. My cell phone will never, ever be dead again. Even if I get stuck on an airplane for eight hours, I know I'll have plenty of power. You have so many things in the video that my mind is ex- is exploding. I do not know what to get. Chargers for the home or the car or portable batteries. What do you suggest, where do I start? Thank you, Darius from Louisville. Darius, the concept is you don't take the charger with your phone everywhere you go what you do is you have chargers at every location you're going to be and you move your phone from location to location to location so you always have a charger for home or car for where you're going to or where you are and you don't need to carry it with you every day everywhere it's a lot less for you to carry and a lot easier so it goes without saying, so I'll only say it about once. Each location has to have high-quality cables, like the Anchor brand cables. They're either all rubbery plastic, all one piece, or they're uh, pl- uh, fabric-wrapped. And they got Teflon coatings on the inside and durable as hell. You can find all of these for Apple and Android at cellphone1234.com. You have to have a high quality high speed cable. This will allow your phone to charge at the maximum speed if you have a high speed charger. If you got a cable from Walgreens and a high speed charger, you won't have a high speed charger. It will, the cable will limit what you do. So here's the concept. At home, for your phone, you have a wall charger, a USB charger, and you have a car charger, and you keep the car charger near the wall charger, either sitting out there or in the drawer below it or next to your bedstand, or something, you got both forms of chargers at home. If you have to hop in someone's car and go someplace, you have a car charger that you can pick up and take with you. Now, in your car, which you're going to take and do your daily errands or go to work in, In your car, you have a car charger and you have a wall charger. It's obvious. You have a car charger to charge your phone in your car. Why do you have a wall charger in your car? Let's say you have to go someplace and you are going to be stuck there all day. This could be an emergency. This could just be you going someplace and having meetings and meeting with clients or whatever. If you get stuck someplace on an all day, 10 hour endeavor and your phone is dying, you can at least go out to your car and get your wall charger and plug in your phone and charge it up in your location. Now, speaking of work, you at work, you have a wall charger and you have a car charger at work. You know, the car charger is less than 10 bucks. It's, you know, it pays to have it with you. What happens if something goes on at work and you have to hop in the car with someone and you have to go someplace? This could be an emergency. This could be an urgency. This could just be an all-day business trip to another town and back. And Joe says, Hey, Steve, come on. We got to go. Let's hop in my car. I'll drive. We got to go to these meetings and you know do a presentation, whatever. Well, if your phone is being sucked dry from all the different applications on it, you at least have a car charger in Joe's car along with you that you took with you from work that will allow you to recharge your phone from his car as you're going. Now, these are kind of the what-ifs, and most of my strategy is around a disaster or something bad happening. Your car is dead. You got to go home with a coworker. You know someone's you, someone's phone is dying. You need, to, you need to loan them a charger or something. It's always good to have extra chargers for both car and home at all of your different locations for all of the what ifs. Two is one. One is none. Three is for me. Four is even more. Five means I get home alive. Six is a good mix. Okay, it's good to have backups to backups and backups. For yourself and backups for your friends and coworkers. So I also recommend, and you can do this as you see fit, you have a lime fuel battery. Now a lime fuel battery is like the size of two cigarette packs side by side. And it will recharge your phone anywhere between 5 and 10 times. And they cost all of about $20. bucks. they are at cellphone1234.com. They have a digital display that says 100% charge, 98% charge, 87% charge. You know, it's not three dumb LEDs telling you how much charge you got. It is an actual digital number, and it works really, really well. I, You can bet your health, life, and safety on a line Fuel battery. Remember, your cell phone is your lifeline. It is what you use to let your family know that you're okay. It's what you use to call 911. If there's something going on in the world, it's what you use to access CNN.com to find out what the hell's going on and if it's going to affect you. Your cell phone is your lifeline, and that's why I have all of these redundant power abilities I'm telling you about that I want you to have with you. same goes for your children. They should have their own wall charger at home, and a car charger at home, depending upon their age. And they should have a wall charger and a car charger, and of course with a cable, in their locker at school. So they're moving their phone between home and school, and they got chargers at each location. Now, whereas they probably don't need to recharge their phone if they're in school, because most of the time it's going to have to be on silent during class and everything else, but you want your children to have the ability to get a hold of you and you to get a hold of your children. What if there's an active shooter situation? Okay? Let's say your child has to evacuate the school for whatever reason. You know, and they're gonna have to hop on a bus and go to the next town because of a disaster, of an emergency, of an urgency. Or are you gonna have to send someone else to pick up your child and take them to their house so you can come and pick them up there later in the evening? your child can grab from their locker a wall charger and a car charger. So no matter where they are, where they're going, they have the ability to keep their lifeline to emergency services and to you fully charged. And you play these what-if games with your children. And you have them practice it. You have them charge their phone off the car charger and off the wall charger and you have them know that they need to carry these in their backpack or they need to have them in their locker at school, and that if they ever have to leave school, that they take them with them. Now, something else, I have a protective case around my phone. I can drop it and nothing will happen. However, if I'm traveling on an airplane, I want to have plenty of power for my phone, and I don't always want to have a cable going from my phone to a line fuel battery on the body-constricting tight confines of a plane. So I have a case that goes around my Android, and they make them for Apple, that has a battery in it. It's the battery case. And so my phone gets a bit thicker and a bit longer, but I got three times the battery of my original battery. So this is now an all-one sleek unit that I can be stuck on a plane. Uh, since all one is sleek, sleek, it can go in my pocket and stay there, okay? It won't come apart. So I can get stuck on a plane after waiting in an airport for three hours and flying for five hours, then stuck on a plane on the tarmac for another eight. I will have all of the power I need for reading Kindle books, reading the news and watching Netflix or movies and listening to episodes of TSP. So these are the basics of what i recommend that you have for your cell phone again the idea is you move your phone between locations that you have power between your home and your car and your car and your work you always have power there everything i just mentioned you can go get and see and buy from cell phone1234.com and as always everything I have done with Jack, all my free classes, everything for you to listen to. I guarantee you, if you're a new person, this is a treasure trove of free knowledge for you that will help you prepare even better. And you can sign up for my email list at the top of steven1234.com. So this is Steve Harris for the expert panel saying thank you. I will talk to you in two weeks. Bye.
1: I have one thing to add for all you iPhone users out there. Um The lightning cable, I think, was a big improvement for the iPhone when they went from the wide, flat thing to the lightning cable. But they're expensive, and they have a tendency to wear out. And they have a tendency to become damaged right where they plug in, at the, the coupler right before you, not the actual paddle that goes into the phone, but right where that is. And because of that, and because of the philosophy Steve has, I have always tried to keep a lot of cables around. But again, if you buy the actual ones from Apple, they're kind of expensive. A lot of the aftermarket ones don't seem to work well, and even the ones that do suffer from the same problem with that cable becoming weak and getting damaged. And I had thought about maybe putting a little piece of heat shrink on there or something like that uh, to reinforce it, but you shouldn't have to do that. I found a cable that is Apple certified, and it is metal braided. And I bought three of them to try them out, and when I realized I could probably beat somebody, like I had a whip with it and it would still work, I bought quite a few more. They're $25 for three of them, and they are fantastic. Uh, they have a braided cord and with an aluminum connector, and they are very, very robust. And I'll have a link in the show notes today to where you can find those on Amazon. A, I, I don't use an Android. I don't use any of the like the Windows phones or whatever like that. So I have no idea on those cords if there's a similar type of problem. But I know many people with the iPhone are fed up with the cords wearing out, getting broken, things like that. I have been using these things. I have one in every car in the truck. I have one in my office. I mean, they get they're in my bug out bag. They're in my my you know my my basically my plane bag when I travel by air. Um, and I haven't had one fill yet. I've had them for over a year. And I, I don't think I'll ever purchase anything else again until somebody can show me something better uh, for a better cost. Because 25 bucks sounds expensive, but for three of them, it's really not when you look at just one lightning cable from Apple. So I'll have those uh, added in today to the show notes for you. Great stuff from Steve as always, and that's my philosophy too. There should be a charger where you go, not with your phone. Next up, let's hear from Erica Strauss on dealing with the problem of dandruff uh, in a natural way without using something like, you know, Head and Shoulders or what have you. They have some pretty harsh chemicals if you read the uh, labels on them.
3: Hello. TSP, this is Erica from Northwest Edible calling in to answer Gary's question about how to tackle dandruff in a natural home remedy kind of way. So let's just jump right in with a little background. Dandruff is a kind of a catch-all term for dry, flaking skin that separates from the scalp in clumps. The flaking itself can be a symptom of a few different things that I'll cover in just a minute, but one thing we are sure of is that dandruff is not caused by poor hygiene. Some people find that more frequent washing of the hair and scalp helps their dandruff, but many Many people find that less frequent washing helps. So dandruff is pretty common, and it's not a sign that you're necessarily doing anything wrong from a hygiene or showering or hair washing perspective. Now, we've all seen those head and shoulders ads, right, where the pretty woman runs her fingers through her man's hair and horror white flakes drift down onto his dark colored polo shirt. Well, guys, your ladies probably don't care nearly as much as the gal in the ad, but it is true that dandruff tends to affect men worse than women, and there are some legitimate biological reasons for this. So everyone's skin and hair are naturally coated with this very, very thin layer of natural wax called sebum. Sebum is a protectant and a moisture barrier, and it's absolutely essential for skin and hair health. But too much sedum buildup can block pores, make hair greasy, and most importantly, in the case of dandruff, can feed some bad microbes and fungi that live on your skin, on your scalp, and can contribute to dandruff. Male scalps produce about 50% more sebum than female scalps, so guys do tend to have more of the problems associated with excess sebum than ladies, including, unfortunately, dandruff. Now, here's a few things we know are associated with dandruff. One, not brushing your hair frequently. A good brushing works as an exfoliant on the scalp, so it does help to break up and loosen flakes of scalp skin. If you get occasional dandruff, a good vigorous brushing with a high-quality but gentle brush might be all you need to keep it in control. But honestly, I think this is kind of treating the symptom more than getting to the cause, so I don't think it's a full solution. Now, another thing that's associated with dandruff is fungal overgrowth. There is strong evidence that overgrowth Growth of certain yeast fungal strains can cause dandruff. And this sounds way freakier than it is. The important thing to know is that our entire body is covered inside and out with a whole universe of microbes every day, every hour of the year. And, you know, for the most part, these are benign or even helpful little guys. But the poison is in the dose, as they say, and excess sebum plus things like cold, dry air, wearing hats a lot, and all the stuff we typically associate with winter, can increase the fungal colonies on your scalp to the degree that they start to cause sticky clumps of dead skin that flake off as what we know as dandruff. Other skin conditions are also likely to co-occur with uh, dandruff. So if on the rest of your body you have something going on, a skin condition, you're more likely to suffer from dandruff. So if you have severe dry skin, you're more likely to get those flakes. If you have seborrheic dermatitis, you're way more likely to suffer from dandruff. If you have psoriasis or eczema, you guessed it, greater chance of dandruff. But the good news is normal everyday dandruff is not by itself a sign that anything bigger is going on. But if you do have dandruff co- Co-occurring with other more severe skin conditions, then a trip to your friendly local dermatologist is probably in order. Similarly, some illnesses like Parkinson's and HIV can also trigger dandruff. But again, if that's your situation, you know it. Another common trigger for dandruff is a reaction, a topical reaction to hair or body care products. Now, Gary, you said that when you try the commercial products designed to control dandruff, you don't get an improvement or it might even get worse. And this is not unusual. A lot of people with dandruff find that the harsher they go in trying to control the symptoms, the worse the condition gets. But many hair care products from basic shampoo to styling products can make that condition worse. Unfortunately, I can't tell you what products to avoid because there are just so many variables but probably the less stuff like styling aids that you leave in your hair the better and probably the more gentle um, things like shampoo and conditioner that you use the better So, okay, now that we understand some of the components that influence dandruff, what do we do? Well, Gary, I can make some suggestions based on the clues in your question. You said dry winter months, your dandruff flares up. And what that suggests to me is we're dealing primarily with a seasonal excess of that sebum, which is in turn probably leading to an overgrowth of those microbes we talked about. And those microbes are in turn leading to the flakes, So to combat this, I would do three very easy things. The first step is just a very basic scalp exfoliation. And you can do this by thoroughly but gently brushing your scalp with your normal hairbrush, or you can do it by being fairly vigorous when you towel dry your hair after you get out of the shower. Just get the towel right down against the scalp and kind of scrub it in there. The idea here is just to physically remove any sticky buildup of excess skin or flakes so that we can penetrate better into the healthy skin of the scalp with our next steps. Do use good judgment with this. I mean, if it's painful when you exfoliate your scalp or when you brush your hair or if you're noticing like red oozy patches on your scalp then something beyond basic dandruff is happening and you know go to the doctor but that's the first step get off as much of that loose flaky skin as possible ideally you'll only need to do this exfoliation step once and then the next two steps will prevent future flaking but if you do notice the flakes returning you can always just go back and repeat that exfoliation process so the second step is to make yourself a really simple comfrey gel. And to do this, you just simmer comfrey root in water for about 20 minutes, then let the mixture cool and strain it. It's very easy. If you can make tea, you can make this comfrey gel. So if you grow your own comfrey, what you'll want to do is um, dig up a bunch of roots, scrub them, and chop up about a cup of the fresh comfrey roots. You can use a food processor if you want. If you don't grow comfrey, um, you can go online and order dried comfrey And if you're using the dried comfrey, you're just going to need about a quarter cup. So one cup of fresh comfrey or one quarter cup of dried comfrey root. So you put the comfrey, fresh or dried, in a pot with three cups of water. Bring that to a simmer and then gently simmer for those 20 minutes. Let everything cool, then strain through a fine mesh sieve. Um, The mixture will be kind of goopy and gloppy. You do want to try and get as much of that goopy stuff through the sieve as you can, but leave the pulp of the roots uh, behind and when all said and done, you should have about two finished cups of this gel. The technical term for the texture of comfrey gel is mucilaginous. It's the same uh, same word that's applied to like okra that's cooked or oatmeal. It basically, it means gloopy, and to be honest, this stuff has got kind of a snotty quality. But don't let that put you off, because comfrey root gel is probably the most effective all-purpose natural remedy for skin conditions, like almost all of them. I don't have dandruff, but I do get eczema on my face in the winter, and this gel works better than the normal steroid creams that are used and prescribed to treat eczema. So I'm a big fan. I really think this has got a huge potential to help your dandruff. The reason comfrey is So amazing uh, for skin is that it contains compounds that speed up skin cell turnover and regeneration. So what that means for your scalp, Gary, is there's less opportunity for those scalp skin cells to kind of... Thick and build up into clumpy flakes. I use comfrey gel topically on myself. I use it on my kids if they get a burn or a scrape. That's how confident I am in the safety and gentleness of this product. But you do need to know that I am not a doctor or a trained herbalist, and there are some concerns about um, some of the compounds in comfrey leading to liver toxicity. What I have seen is that this is primarily an issue with massive amounts of comfrey taken internally, and I have very... Very little personal concern about uh, topical uses of comfrey, even comfrey root preparation when used for a limited amount of time. But if you have any concerns or if you have issues uh, with your liver function, this is something you're going to want to probably take up with someone who knows comfrey very well just to make sure you're on the safe side. But again, my take having read some of the studies is short-term use topical application is something I'm comfortable with for myself and my family. You should know that this gel should not be taken internally. It's just for periodic external use. So please do not drink this gel. How you use the Comfrey Gel is just take about maybe a half tablespoon, tablespoon of the gel, rub it into your scalp with your fingertips. Try and get a nice, thin, even layer all over your scalp and leave that gel on for at least several hours. It'll probably make your hair look a little crunchy. And if your scalp feels a little bit tight as the gel dries, that's totally normal. I'd advise rubbing this gel in once a day at night and just leave it on while you sleep and then shower in the morning as usual. One thing you do need to know about this gel is it's perishable. You can make a batch and keep it in the fridge for about a week, but what I recommend is just pouring the gel into ice cube trays and storing those cubes in the freezer. I always, always, always have comfrey gel cubes frozen in my freezer in the summer because they're amazing for sunburns. If your kid or your friend or you is out working in the garden and you get a sunburn, having that frozen comfrey gel ready to go and rub on that sunburn makes a huge difference. So for your dandruff you can thaw one cube at a time as you need which should be enough gel for several days of these scalp massages or you can rub the frozen comfrey cube right on your scalp to apply a thin layer from the cube um this might be a little cold on your head though so your choice Okay, so step three in treating your dandruff, Gary, is to bring a little natural antiseptic and antifungal power to your scalp in the form of tea tree oil. Tea tree oil is an essential oil derived from an Australian tree. It's widely available, not very expensive, and it's one of the few essential oils that has strong science to back up its effectiveness. Tea tree has a pleasant and sort of medicinal woodsy smell, and it's an excellent topical antimicrobial. So it's often used in natural preparations for acne, athlete's foot, dandruff, similar skin conditions to apply tea tree oil to your scalp we want to dilute it there are certain situations where a trained herbalist might want to use tea tree oil undiluted but this isn't one of them if you just rub tea tree oil right on your scalp you can run the risk of actually over drying your skin and that's going to exacerbate your dandruff problem so i'd start with about a three percent dilution of tea tree oil which is a very moderate dilution for an adult that's about one tablespoon of olive oil in a small bowl with about nine or ten drops of tea tree oil added so one tablespoon ten drops is a good rule of thumb. thumb for a three percent dilution mix that well and then use your fingertips to rub maybe a half teaspoon of this mixture this oil mixture into your scalp once a day it's best to do this while you get out of the shower in the morning because your hair will still be wet so it won't soak up the oil and your scalp will be warm so that oil will have an easier time softening up any rough skin patches that might be there Now, Gary, I don't want to play on any gender stereotypes here, but it is my observation that women have a higher tolerance for multi-step skincare regimen than guys. So if the idea of remembering to do something in the morning and something at night to keep the dandruff at bay sounds like it's just going to be too much of a hassle, I think it would work totally fine to add the tea tree oil directly to your comfrey gel to make a single step product you can just put on your scalp at night. You're going to lose some of the moisturizing benefits of the olive oil, but done is better than perfect. So, To go for this natural all-in-one approach, what you'd want to do is measure the final quality of comfrey gel that you get very carefully. So for every ounce of gel, you want to add 18 drops of tea tree oil. So one cup or eight ounces of gel would call for 144 drops of tea tree oil. A few drops either side of this isn't going to hurt anything. So if you end up with 140 or 150 drops, that's fine. But these three techniques, gentle exfoliation, antimicrobial tea tree oil to combat fungal overgrowth, and comfrey gel to stimulate skin cell turnover on your scalp together should go a very long way to minimizing or even eliminating your dandruff. So, Gary, I hope this helps you clear up those flakes without harsh chemicals. I think you're going to find this works really well. The combination of the comfrey and the tea tree oil is um, it's just fantastic for skin. I think it's going to make a big difference in that dandruff. So if you or any of the community have questions about this, just let me know by leaving a comment in today's show notes, and I will do my best to answer. Guys, this has been Erica from Northwest Edible Life. Thanks so much for sending in your questions for me here on the Expert Council. Please do keep those questions coming, and in the meantime, come say hi Annie time at nwedible.com or facebook.com slash nwedible thank you jack of course and thanks tsp i look forward to chatting with you guys in a couple of weeks
1: once again uh comfrey is just to me a miracle plant and a dermal regenerator uh, and that to me would be a big reason that it would work for this problem and many other things by the way my uh, my knee rehabilitation continues very very well and, uh, I, I really put it down to comfrey and plantain that has, uh, enabled me to, uh, to take that under and, and do it myself rather than rely on medicine, which I'm sure would have immediately said, oh god, yeah, we gotta we got to at least scope that knee and put holes in it and stick some stuff in there and see if it needs surgery. And, of course, you'd think that it, most of the time would be, yeah, we got to do it. Yeah, I hope your insurance covers it. Yeah, okay. Anyway, I'm not saying you should always take that approach, but in my case, it seems to have been the right one. Anyway, uh, next up, another medical question, staph infections. Dr. Bones, take it away. Hey, this is Joe Alton,
0: MD, also known as Dr. Bones of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find close to 800 articles on medical preparedness for any disaster. Also the co-author of the Survival Medicine Handbook. This week's question comes from Jesse, who asks, What's our offense and defense against staph infections if for some reason we don't have access to antibiotics? My four-year-old son, who's in seemingly great health, twice... In the past year, unfortunately, has been infected with staph on his face. The first time last winter, he had a cold, blew his nose too much, got irritated, and soon infected. The second time just happened recently when he was scratched by a neighbor kid on the nose and eye, and scratches soon grew into sores. Both times, we tried everything out of the herbal antibiotic books for weeks without success. Both times, we eventually went to a conventional doctor to get antibiotics. They worked overnight. seems as though our son is susceptible to this certain strain of staph, Any advice would be appreciated. Jesse, certainly infectious organisms are an issue for many in good times, as well as bad. Your son's history seems to indicate, as you mentioned, a tendency towards a particular strain of staph. It would be very useful to know which strain it is, so consider asking your doctor to send the specimen from one of the sores to the lab. By doing a culture of the specimen, you'll be able not only to identify the exact species of microbe involved, but also what antibiotics kill it. It's always a good idea to consider all the tools in the woodshed, so I'm glad you tried some herbal antibiotics. Unfortunately, they don't always work. The experience usually varies significantly from individual to individual. As you've gone through a number of herbal antibiotics without success, you might just have to rely on a supply of antibiotic drugs, which you should always have in your medical storage. Many of these are available in veterinary form, and years ago, I was indeed the first physician to write about fish antibiotics and other veterinary antibiotics like avian antibiotics as a survival option. Ordinarily, you could just take amoxicillin or cephalexin, fish mox or fish felix, to deal with most skin infections. Unfortunately, because methicillin-resistant staph aureus MRSA causes more than one half of all staph infections in most communities, penicillins or cephalosporins might just not be enough. Some experts recommend combination therapy, adding clindamycin or a quinolone like Cipro to your therapy. Others suggest sulfa drugs, doxycycline, or other combinations. As data accumulates, clindamycin may indeed wind up being the preferred outpatient antibiotic therapy over time. This is because different areas exhibit different levels of resistance to certain antibiotics in the meantime consider these common sense precautions to help lower your child's risk of developing staph infection make sure you wash your hands careful hand washing is your best defense against germs do this briskly for at least 15 to 30 seconds sing happy birthday twice for example that would give you a good idea about how long that would be then dry them with a disposable towel use another towel to turn off the faucet if your hands aren't visibly dirty you can use a hand sanitizer containing at least 62% alcohol. If they are dirty, then you probably should stick with soap and water. Keep cuts and abrasions clean and covered with sterile dry bandages until they heal. Those open sores easily get infected. Pus from infected sores often contain staph, like what your son has, and keeping wounds covered might help keep the bacteria from spreading. Avoid sharing any personal items such as towels, sheets, razors, clothing, Don't share your razor with your four-year-old child, in other words. Staph infections can spread on objects as well as from person to person. Now, always wash clothing and bedding in hot water. Staph bacteria can survive on clothing and bedding that isn't properly washed to get bacteria off clothing and sheets. you got to wash them in hot water whenever you can. Also, use bleach on any bleach-safe materials. Drying in the dryer is better than air drying. But staph bacteria, they're pretty sturdy, they could even survive the clothes dryer. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Hey, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show on our YouTube channel, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, and our Facebook group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. Also, our new podcast is called American Survival Radio. You can check out our website at americansurvivalradio.com or... Our survival medicine podcast is also available on blogtalkradio.com. Remember that our opinions pertain to post-apocalyptic settings, survival scenarios, and the like. In normal times, seek conventional and standard medical care whenever it's available.
1: Good stuff. And I mean, that's, that's another reason to take uh, Doc Bones and Nurse Amy's advice on the storage of antibiotics, uh, specifically from the fish industry. Uh, and they, they've done extensive research to prove that the capsules that are in those bottles are the same capsules that you get at the pharmacy. And uh, as always, J- Bones doesn't advise you that if you get sick, to go start popping fish mocks. But this is a perfect example of hey, we tried this other stuff, it didn't work. We used antibiotics and they did work. Antibiotics are not an evil thing. They've been so overused that they have lost a lot of their effectiveness, and they won't always work for everything. But having them as an option in a situation where there is no support is a good idea. Great advice on the prevention. Of course, Doc Bones is a consummate professional. I thank him and every one of our council members for their service to this audience on the council. Next up, council member Gary Collins. We have a question for him, again, on intermittent fasting. Gary, go ahead and uh, let's talk about that.
4: Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the Primal Power Method. Uh, I have a great question today, again, about intermittent fasting, which is pretty timely. I've been getting a lot of questions on intermittent fasting lately. Uh, Brandon has changed his schedule. He used to uh, work out in the afternoon, and now he's working out in the early morning, and he's having difficulty uh, maintaining that, that 16-hour fasting window because he's hungry right after he works out. There could be uh, two things I'm going to want to address. Uh, remember, the first is let's look at what intermittent fasting is. It is 16 hours of not eating, followed by eight hours of feeding. So you eat within the eight hour window. You do not eat uh, within the 16 hour window. And the best way to make that work, obviously, is to fast throughout the night and while you sleep into the morning and then have your first meal to break your fast. That's where the the term breakfast came from, break fast. Um, so remember that. Some people have reversed it depending on schedules. I think part of where he's he's gotten confused in asking for this tip is I may have been a little too regimented in my uh, blog post and the section in my book on intermittent fasting. I put in there, I put in what people will usually do and I probably shouldn't have done that. I'm real, it's hard for me. Sometimes I have to put things in regimented not to confuse a bunch of people because if I give them too much leeway, it actually throws them off and they, they get even more confused and don't know where to start or how to do it. So I kind of put it in there as a template and I probably should have been more lenient and uh, shown that, you know, as I've always explained in all my teachings, is our bodies are always changing. Everything's always changing. Don't be so regimented. Um, so he may have been confused on the windows, the window that I gave. What you guys need to understand with intermittent fasting is it can change. You can change the schedule. It can change day to day. My intermittent fasting windows are not the same every day. They're totally different. My first meal will be at a different time, literally every single day. And, Remember, we want to eat when we're hungry. Now, if we're working out, getting a lot of physical exercise, well, the result of that is hunger. Our body wants to replenish those calories and those macronutrients in order to repair and build or build, depending upon what you're you're trying to do. So for people who are trying to build muscle and add a little lean more muscle mass or even a lot, the window is that two hour window after you get workout or physical exercise. That's when our cells are the most responsive for the uptake of our macronutrients and our micronutrients for that matter. So that's why you always hear that window after working out. I think Brandon's getting caught in that a little bit. So in he's trying to fight the hunger and try and stay. Well, if you're not trying to put on muscle, um, but maybe Just trying to maintain and you're not so concerned about that. You're just more concerned with lean body master. Like I said, maintaining that two hour window isn't as important after working out. I, I have experimented with this for years and I've used it with other clients. The two hour window really isn't that important for people trying to maintain or especially when you're, uh, I've noticed as you age, it's not as important because we don't have the testosterone and the, the muscle building, uh, you know, chemicals and hormones in order to build, even though you can older in age, but just doesn't seem to be as important. So if you're trying to build though, and you're trying to add muscle, that two hour window is actually really, really important, especially for competitive athletes and bodybuilders. That two hour window is crucial. I would even cut it down to an hour for those people, but what I, what I would like to Brandon do, he's asking me for tricks so he won't be so hungry after he works out. Well, there, there really is no trick for that. Once you work out, you're going to get hungry. Um, you know, that's just the way your body works. So what I would do is I want to, I want to kind of emphasize you have to be adaptable and flexible with intermittent fasting. Like I said, I think people have become too regimented and we all do this. We tend to, uh, focus in on, on the same routine. We're, 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 we're humans. We get caught in routines. With this, I want you just to, to adapt it. So now he's working out at five in the morning as opposed to he was working out like three thirty in the afternoon. So that's different time scale working out. Well, working out later, it's easier to intermittent fast because you're not active in the morning. So you won't be as hungry. So that first meal he was having was around 11 11:30 which is the typical schedule. So what I would do if I was him I would adjust my fasting time, start time in the evening. So instead of having that meal later in the, in the in the evening you make it earlier. And actually someone asked me the same question they were confused they hit me up on my blog and I had to explain it to him and that's what made me change the blog post. So what he should do is have that last meal at 5 p.m. at night, 5, 530. That way, once he goes and works out, showers is ready. By the time he has that first meal, he's within that 16 hour range again. So when you break that fast, you don't have to, you don't have to do it at a specific time. It's just, you're trying to get that window, that gap, that 16 hour fasting period. That's what you're shooting for. And guys, it, And gals, it doesn't have to be exactly 16 hours. It's 14, 16 hours roughly right around there. It doesn't always work that way. Um, You know, for me, every day is so different that, like I I explained earlier, is my first meal is all over the board. It, It just depends when I work out, when I go to the gym, what I got going on that day. So I want you guys to be flexible that way you know change it around it could it could change day to day week to week however you want to do it don't be so regimented and worried about your time frames that they have to be specific every day they have to go this way or it just isn't going to work you'll be just fine now if you get hungry one of the tips i can give you is The easiest way to avoid eating the worst is if you eat, you know, starchy foods, carbo, you know, starchy carbohydrates, sugars during that fast period, that will actually get you out of the fat burning mode, kick you out of it. And and so what I always recommend is a scoop of coconut oil. You know, it, it has no glycemic index. It's instantly converted very quickly because of the medium chain fatty acids. It's changed into ketone bodies, which are partially burnt fats that utilizes energy instead of glucose. So that's one of the the tips I could give him. But I would rather have him adjust his schedule instead of trying to trick his body because, you know, and, and it may take a while. Here's another thing. His schedule has changed. So it takes you a while to adapt to that new eating schedule. Again, like I said, I wouldn't I, I would rather have you guys not be so regimented. But for a lot of people, their work schedule is very regimented. So you have to, you know, your times are going to be pretty close every single day. Um, so yeah, just be more flexible. Just you know, don't worry about certain time frames of the day. You're just trying to get that 14, 16 hours in. And another thing I have found with people who intermittent fast or are trying it is they feel that they have to do it every single day. You don't. Um There's, I don't do it every single day. There's, there's times when I'm just flat out hungry and that's my body telling me that, you know, um, I've maybe kicked into too far of a calorie deficit or I'm not getting enough of uh, protein or fat in order to, to build and maintain my energy stores or even carbohydrates. So remember your body is always going to tell you which direction you should go. So don't force yourself to intermittent fast if you're not feeling it. It it will happen from time to time. Remember that our ancestors are are ancient as we I like to use cavemen or whatever, cave women that we wouldn't have you know access to food all the time. So think of what they would do. Their fasting schedules would be changing all the time. And they weren't thinking of fasting. It was just they didn't have any food to eat. So remember, remember anytime you have a question, kind of think back to that. Okay. If I was living off the land and I didn't have, you know, refrigeration, I didn't have, you know, grocery store. I didn't have, you know, I had to get all of my own food. What would my eating schedule kind of look like? And I'm not saying you have to do that. People freak out and they'll go out and they'll start eating just like that. I'm just using that as an example to show you where intermittent fasting, the the whole concept, came from. It was to get our bodies into a fasting mode because of not having readily readily access to food all the time. Well, I hope that helps, guys. And uh, remember, send me any questions you have at contact at primalpowermethod.com or you can hit it in the comments section of Jack's show on Fridays. Take care.
1: what i 'll add to that to think about it too is so you 're working out and then you 're hungry okay great um, go ahead and eat uh, <laughs> you know you can adjust your, your 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 last meal to to extend the fasting period, but I agree with gary if it's if it 's twelve hours fourteen hours versus sixty whatever it, it you 're still creating that long duration in between meals, which is emulating uh, our hunter gatherers because this is another thing that our hunter gatherers uh, ancestors did not do. Not only did they not intentionally intermittent fast, they also did not work out. And that's not anything against working out, because our our lifestyles, especially those of us with office jobs, are far more sedentary than their lifestyles were to a degree. Because the hunter-gatherer lifestyle is about living in a natural state. And if we can look at existing hunter-gatherer societies where they still exist, and you can see these are not people that spend a lot of time laboring really, really hard. That's kind of the whole point. When they go somewhere, they get there with their feet. Uh, They are in good shape. They're generally lean, cut, very, very strong from not a muscular, but more of a tendon sinew type of thing. They've got that... That that real uh, intrinsic strength that doesn't wear out when they get older, you know, just because their muscles atrophy a little bit, uh, very much like in some ways coal miner strength in the early days, you know, uh, as a coal miner. But as people get older in coal mining, that life breaks them down, and, and they do have a, a reversal. Um, so just understand whenever we're doing anything in paleo primal type of world that we're never perfectly emulating the, the thing. We're trying to find the the the. The, the most close to a natural state for our body, our mind, and um, and everything else to exist in in our diet. Uh, and we're trying to emulate that and then take into account just the reality of modern life and you know, the other reality of sometimes you just want something. And, and sometimes that's okay as long as it's not all the time. Uh, next up, I have a question for Ben Falk on planting in, around, and on drain fields or leach fields uh, when you're trying to grow as much as you can for your household. Ben, take it away.
5: Hi, Jack and I. Ben Falk with Whole Systems Design. Um, question about utilizing a septic drain field, which in this part of the world we call a leach field, but same, same thing, I'm pretty sure. Um, just a septic system where all the leachate, leachate goes out into the into the soil. Um, yeah, it's the most fertile part of most people's properties. M- anywhere you have a septic system, so um, we've experimented a lot with them. Um, we haven't ever gone so far as to plant trees or, or perennials on them. Um, definitely, officially, is very not very not recommended at all um, because you can really clog them with roots, which makes sense, and I'm sure that does happen. Um, but we have grown corn amaranth, um, cabbage, excuse me, squash, corn, squash, amaranth on them, and um, probably another crop or two that I'm not remembering, but basically our findings were that, uh, oh, and sunflowers as well, the sunflowers and amaranth just kept growing, growing, growing. Um, Amazing size, but they didn't do what we wanted them to do, which is produce a yield, an actual, not just biomass, but seeds, the seed yield, um, it's just continuous nitrogen source. So that was a problem. Um, so I really think they're best to grow biomass, um, rather than something that needs to fruit because of the continual nitrogen source. You know, that's, that's a nice thing in 're in the, um, vegetative phase of a, of a plant. But once a plant needs to reproduce, it doesn't, if it's just has continual access to nitrogen, it's not often going to mature a seed, Um, so, but we did find that that, um, squash did still mature even despite all of those nutrients. And I've been in other parts of the world actually, where we've grown watermelons, like in pig poop, basically almost straight pig manure and watermelons in a very hot tropical part of the world where I was living produced that way. So I think there's something to be said for cucurbits, You know, cucumber family plants doing well in just continual manured, you know, nitrogen uh, feeding environments where they just have constant, endless food source, and they still seem to mature their crop. So that's something worth experimenting with. So I I think um, squash works great for us. Anything in the cucurbit family might be worth experimenting with, Um, or just biomass plants that ideally don't, clog, don't have crazy roots that will clog your drain line over time. But, I mean, I'd say comfrey because you just get free green manure from it, but I'm a little skeptical of the roots, so I haven't put comfrey in my drain field. It's also a pretty permanent one-way move. You're not going to really get comfrey out of there too easily. Um, but grass, I mean, we just scythe it like crazy and just get a lot of green manure and a lot of basically free soil to compost and or just mulch our perennials with. So it's a great mulch source. Um, So even if you're just letting the grass get tall and cutting it, um, mowing it or, you know, scything it, and otherwise harvesting the grass. Um, But, yeah, those are some thoughts on that. And it's definitely very valuable and very productive. So it's worth utilizing. It's too valuable to just mow, you know, once a week like most of the world does. Good luck.
1: All I'm going to add to that is I think people worry way too much about, you know, oh, my God, if you grow something in the leach field and it touches the ground, it's going to be infused with E. coli, and you're going to die. Um, We live in a world where we've tried to sanitize and sterilize everything. Uh, I am with Ben on not putting any large rooted perennials in and around your leach field. I think your smaller perennials that have smaller root systems can certainly uh, benefit from uh, that 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 environment. But I would advise like your leach field is going to have a point where effluent comes into it and a place where effluent exits it. There's a certain size to it and there's a flow. And I would plant any perennials or even things like perennial herbs like comfrey. To the downside, because you have less chance of roots getting in and clogging up the works. So that would be my only addition to a great answer by Ben Falk. Definitely something to do with, you know, good pasture over there and siding it and feeding it to animals or grazing them across it. That's, That's a fantastic use of it, and that's a a no-brainer with no concerns for all the, oh, God, everybody's going to die type thing. All right, so my question that I decided to answer for today's show comes from Gary, and Gary says, question about sunchokes. I guess that's because I've been talking about them a lot lately. Uh, This is Gary from Northwest Oregon. I live in Zone 5A at 5,000 feet on a northern exposure. I've successfully grown sunchokes for several years, best planted in the spring. They reach maturity, and I have yet to find an insect pest that disturbs them. I'm looking for ways to prepare them. You mentioned in a recent podcast that you grow them also. I've tried frying as a potato equivalent and soup, and even found a chaffron pie recipe in Yule Gibbons Stalking the Wild asparagus yet to try. The problem is gastrointestinal distress, that results uh, that has caused my family to refuse to eat any derivative of the product, even in small quantities. Are there preparations and treatments, etc., that mitigate this effect? I hate to eliminate something that was a staple for the American Indian and will successfully grow in my region, Gary. Yeah, I've said I think this is one of the ultimate survival crops for a lot of reasons. One is storability in the ground, that once you get to the cold time of the year, you just heavily mulch on top of them and you take them out as you need them and you'll definitely leave enough behind that more will come next year you really don't need to pull them all out of the ground and I'm going to start with that so let's talk about why this happens Within the Jerusalem artichoke tuber, and this is not an artichoke like you think of at an Italian restaurant on an antipasta plate. This is a plant that is in the Helianthus family. It looks very much like a sunflower. It's kind of in the same family as that, but it's not really a sunflower. It produces small flowers, and some of them are relatively short. They grow 3 4 feet, dwarf varieties, and many of them grow 11, 12 feet or more. Huge, huge plants, lots of stalks, lots of biomass. And they put these nodules on that kind of look like lumpy potatoes into the ground. And one, one small piece of a tuber put in the ground, uh, with the right growing conditions can end up producing about a five gallon bucket full of tubers. And you will, that will be still missing a few here and there. And if one little piece remains, it will come back next year. So it's something you want to grow in a place where you can contain it. But it's not the invasive nightmare that people act like it is. If you do have any of them start to wander outside of where you want them contained, you let them get about 18 inches tall to 2 feet tall in the spring, and then you just grab them and pull them out of the ground. When you do that, you'll see the tuber that comes up will be hollow and all of its energy used, and it will not regrow. If you pull them up when they're really, really tiny, the tuber goes into survival mode, makes a bunch of little tubers, and the problem gets worse. So that's, that's how we contain them. Now, that tuber is made up of different types of carbohydrate. It is a carbohydrate tuber. Uh, one of the primary types of carbohydrate in there is a, is a substance called inulin, and that's why they're actually a pretty good thing for people that have diabetes, because it is an indigestible sugar. So if you can tolerate the gas, or if you don't have... Because some people can eat the hell out of them and get no problems whatsoever then they are a good low sugar tuber to be harvested early. The longer you leave them in the ground after your first frost, the sweeter that they will become. When the top dies back, all the sugars that were in the top fall into the root system, just like trees do when they go dormant. They go down there, and then... The tuber begins a process in the cold, cool ground of much of that inulin being converted to fructose, which is the sugars you have in your fruits. so if that is left in the ground for a good week after your frost you know i 'm talking freezing temperatures here has begun, and that in of itself will reduce this, but it will not eliminate it the longer it 's in the ground the less of a problem you should have. But some people are affected even by a small amount of inulin, and not all of the inulin will be converted to fructose, only a portion thereof, which will reduce it. Now, one of the things that happens and causes all this discomfort, resulting in lots of expelled gas, um, though I have to say that of the things that have caused expelled gas in my home, not the worst. The worst in quantity but in quality, not real bad smelling stuff. I'm just saying. I know everybody thinks their own are not bad, but, I mean, in general, there's a lot of noise, but not a lot of odor. I don't know what the deal is with that. But what's going on is that inulin in your stomach, much like people who are lactose intolerant, since it's not capable of being broken down in a digestive process, it actually begins somewhat of a fermentation process in the gut. We all know what that does. Fermentation produces gas, produces CO2. So my thought was maybe, just maybe, if we were to lacto-ferment sunchokes, we would eliminate that. Having no sunchokes left right now, except the ones I've planted for the next season, I thought to myself, self, somebody else must have thought of this, and I used my Google Foo, and I found an article. The article is titled, Taking the Wind Out of Jerusalem Artichokes. And it's exactly what my hypothesis was, and it seems to be correct. And going further, this process uses turmeric, which makes the sunchokes a beautiful yellow and infuses yet more uh, nutritional value into something that's already high nutritional value. Now we've taken something and we've converted the sugars, even through fermentation, into something that's going to cause less of a blood spike. We're using lacto fermentation. And that means that we are creating a huge quantity of beneficial gut bacterium that we're going to put in our gut and inoculate our gut for, for overall health. And then we take something with amazing anti-inflammatory and other positive medicinal qualities like turmeric and we add that to it. Sounds fantastic. So how do you make them? Here's the basic ingredient. I'll give you the link to the whole article. Uh, one and a half pounds of Jerusalem artichokes broken into nodes, thoroughly scrubbed and cut into one quarter inch dice, a teaspoon of ground dried turmeric, one ounce of garlic, about eight cloves chopped, one half ounce of French ginger minced, one teaspoon of cumin, two teaspoons of pickling salt. Two teaspoons of sugar, one and a half cups of water. Toss together the dried artichokes and turmeric, garlic and ginger, and the cumin pack mixture in a jar with a capacity of at least six cups. Dissolve the salt and sugars in the water. Pour the brine over the Jerusalem artichokes. It will not cover them at first. Add brine bag, a gallon freezer bag with a paper or with a weight containing one tablespoon of salt dissolved in three cups of water or another suitable weight. The next day, the brine should cover the artichokes. If it doesn't add more brine mixed with the same proportions, wait several days before tasting the pickle. I found it perfect after a week. The brine was sour and the Jerusalem artichokes were pleasantly, mildly spicy and still crunchy. When the pickle has fermented enough to suit your taste, store the jar in a refrigerator, keep Jerusalem artichokes weighted so they stay, they won't take on a grayish cast several people have now eaten this pickle in politely distressing and potentially distressing quantities the test subjects remained on site this time so if the reports didn't come verbally they would have merged in another form and nobody has suffered i hope these results will be duplicated by other investigators let me know okay don't be shy and this is on an article called uh, a garden stable a garden's table and it's a great article with a lot more information about uh, Jerusalem artichokes, and I'll have a link in the show notes to that. So I'm definitely going to try that, and some thoughts of mine are right away. Hey, a little jalapeno in there, a little bit of spice, or maybe a little serrano, you want a little more spice? Just maybe one split. And then I have another piece of advice for you. Whenever you're doing this ferments and the recipe calls for garlic, chopped up, minced, whatever, don't do it. Don't, don't chop the garlic up. Put in as much or even more of the gar- garlic that's qual- uh, called for in the recipe. Take whole cloves of garlic and put it in there. When you go to put your pickles into a jar in the refrigerator, take all those little beautiful garlic cloves out of there, put them in a little like pint and jelly jar, half pint and jelly jar, put a little brine in with them and keep that and use it for your cooking. It is fantastic and it's much easier if they're in little nodules and you find, find yourself, if you're like me and you like garlic, eating them. I'll add another thing. Whenever I do fermentation, I always make a little bit of yogurt cheese. It's just an excuse to make some awesome yogurt cheese. Um, and to make yogurt cheese, you basically hang yogurt up in a piece of cheesecloth, or I use a flour stock tactile. Mix it with other seasonings you want. Like I use dill and almonds as one I do. Jalapeno and garlic is another one. A little bit of salt and uh, mix that up and hang it overnight for about 12 to 14 hours, let all the whey come out of it, and you got yogurt cheese. That whey is a huge nutritional powerhouse full of lactobacillus bacterium, and I take one little teaspoon of that and I drop that in. Another thing that I might suggest with this, though I haven't made them yet, if you want your lacto-ferments to come out with a good crunch, adding some tannin will help with that. A simple source of tannin is grape or muscadine grape leaf, uh, that will help a lot. Also, some people use oak leaves, uh, but I have found that grape leaves work fantastic. And it just so happens that the grapes have done enough of their leaf usage by fall when this is coming in, and you're doing a lot of active fermentation. Another little thing that I thought I would point out: I have an awesome German-style crock. I think I paid $120 for. And it is it 's great it 's a ceramic crock, so it maintains temperature. I think I have the ten liter one it 's really big, but even the five liter ones i 've routinely seen well over one hundred bucks they 've dropped the list price on the one that I recommend by TSM products down to eighty dollars and it 's currently on sale at Amazon with free shipping on on prime for sixty nine dollars and four cents. A lot of people think when they're going to get a fermentation crock, they want like this giant thing like your grandmother used to have with pickles down in the the cellar. If that fits your lifeline, but here's the reality. Five liters is a lot of space. And these ferments don't stay optimum for that long. I mean, this is a good thing for like a month or two, and it starts to get beyond what I want anyway, personally, for my ferments. So five liters is five liters. Think about it this way. A two-liter soda bottle and another two-liter soda bottle and a one-liter soda bottle. That's a lot to ferment at once. It has these really great ceramic weights, so you don't have to worry about filling a bag or anything like that. Now, you can do this in mason jars, pop a hole in the lid, stick it in an airlock, but I love my German-style fermenter, and I just want to let you guys know that the thing is on sale right now for $69 with free shipping. at at Amazon. So if you've had your eye on one of those, there'll be a link in the show notes where you can pick it up today. Remember, you can always help support the Survival Podcast by going to tspaz.com when you shop for anything on Amazon. And it's a shorter domain than Amazon. So if you like the show and want to support us, you can do that. Next up, I promised you something at the end today that if you do Facebook marketing, you'd want to know about. And I'll I'll make it quick because I know this only applies to a small group of the audience, but there is a tool called, uh, for, for developers on Facebook called an object debugger, the object debugger, and I'll put a link in the show notes today where you can find it, all you do is when you have a problem, like you're posting something and it's all jacked up, it doesn't look right, you go there and you stick the link that you're trying to post into the object debugger, it'll tell you everything that's wrong with it and tell you to fix it, well here's the thing, it might be a YouTube video where you can't fix it, and it says there's something wrong with everything, there's probably not, okay, Here's the deal, though. It will show you the last scrape where what's gone out, and the reason it happens. Let's say you post a link, and instead of coming up with like a summary of the article, it's just like a title, right? And there's no images associated with it or anything like that. It just looks like crap. Well, so you close it and try it again. Well, what happens is it's already been there. It's already scraped it, just like Google scrapes for its search results, and it's showing a cached version of it. Inside the debugger, you can say you can force Facebook. Go do this again and get it right this time, dummy. So you click that button and it will it will rescrape that information. And usually it'll come out looking decent. You can then go and and, and repost it to Facebook, it'll pull that new scrape and it'll display right. Here's another little tip. A lot of you guys have figured out groups get better exposure on Facebook than pages. Pages have become the dinosaur of Facebook because they know that it's all companies trying to, you know, promote their products. And what they're doing is they're charging us to reach our own fans now. But when you post stuff like this on, on, a, on a group on Facebook, you can upload images. so You can control what images are displayed with it. So what many of you that have switched on to marketing through Facebook groups over pages should do is make sure you still have a page, okay, Use those features and the debugger to get a really good-looking, highly visual post on your page, and then share it from your page to your group. That is probably worth, for those of you that are serious about Facebook marketing, that's probably worth a grand and free consulting right there. Okay, It's something that I figured out because I got frustrated with Facebook and said somebody has got to be know how to deal with this problem. I found this tool. It is the greatest thing in the world, and then I put that together with using a group, and what have you. Because here's what I mean. I'll put up an article or something on Facebook on the TSP group page. We have over 110,000 fans. I'll reach like 2,000. And Facebook will go, hey, you want to pay to reach your own people? That's what they're doing now. So here's one thing you can do. If you like hearing from me on Facebook, go to our page. And when you get to our page, you can actually set it so that you will get notified uh, by our pages at the top of your results. So go to our Facebook page. Uh, if you if you haven't become a fan yet of the page, go ahead and do so. And then you'll look up at the top of the page and you'll see where it says liked. It's got a thumbs up because you've liked the page. You'll see a little arrow. If you hover there, you'll see in your news feed, see first or see default notifications on or off. You decide if you want notifications. But in your newsfeed, if you say see first, that means when we post something, you'll actually see it on your on your page, if you want to. And I tell you there's not so much to be self serving for myself, but for any page that you're a fan of on Facebook, do you actually I know a lot of you guys are power users on Facebook, it's a great way to communicate. And you you, you you sign up to see information from a certain page and then you never see nothing and you don't think they're doing anything. So I did want to point that out. just as a tool that you can use for any pages. And those of you that market on Facebook, you may want to let your people that follow you know to do that as well. Also on YouTube, same type of thing. When you subscribe to a YouTube channel, where it's mine or anybody else's, once you subscribe to that channel, you'll see when you are viewing a video for that person, subscribe to the check mark. And you'll see the number of subscribers they have just to the right of that. And right in between, you'll see a little uh, star-looking thing. And if you hover on that, You can you can click on that and it will let you select a thing to send email notifications so that when they put up a new video you get an email notice and you know I don't do that for all my channels I'm subscribed to, but the ones I really like, I have that done and I I think that's a good feature to know about as well. And again, you guys that are building businesses and using these social media outlets for marketing, it's a good idea for you to let your folks know that as well. So hopefully that's a little business advice segment there at the end of today's show. Um Again, I need more questions for members of the council. I've got a question already taken care of for the next round by Michael Jordan uh, on Splitting Hives. That will be on uh, next week's Expert Council show. But other than that, on Monday morning, I send out the list to all the council members. If you have a question for a council member that you heard on today's show or previous shows... Get those questions in for me. Remember, you can go to the Meet the Expert Council page on our website to see all of the expert council members. I wouldn't bother with questions for Brian Black this round. He's in the middle of moving to a new house, and he said he just can't handle additional responsibilities right now because he's running a, a business of his own, and I understand that. Even though I did tell him he was a piker, I don't really mean it. He's not a piker. He's bu- I know moving sucks. But everybody else, get me questions for him so I can get you more great shows like today on our Fridays. Remember to go to the forum and vote for the Tuesday show format. There will be a link in today's show notes to do that. And uh, remember, if you want to do business with other members of the uh, TSP community, to check out the TSP business directory. Today's featured member is actually the guy... The the directory, Blake Development, is your source for web creation and outsourced software solution. Brake's team designed our business directory, the Nine Mile Farm website, and many projects for TSP community members like Wef- Weaponer Farms and Appalachian Tactical Academy. You can call Break- Blake directly. Brake, you can call Blake directly at eight four four site one two three. You can check them out at the business directory. And, again, tspbiz.com will get you straight to the directory. Uh, with that, I want to uh, talk about our closing song today. Um, have you ever seen The Rain by Creedence Clearwater Revival? And I think it's just a great song in in of itself. I I love CCR. It was one of those bands that broke up really early, a lot of bad bad blood between the members, and still produced so many hits in just a short number of years. It's one of those bands you wonder if they had stayed together and kept making music, how far could they have really gone? You know, it's one of those sad stories in music. But You know, while they were together, we got some of the all-time iconic great rock and roll songs like Fortunate Son and this one, Have You Ever Seen The Rain? Now, here's my funny story about this song. It has nothing really to do with the song. It has to do with a movie that this song was in, The Longest Yard, the remake where Adam Sandler played the part of the quarterback that went to jail for shaving points and gambling and things like that. Um, And... The actually it wasn't for that. It was because he did stupid stuff after that and got himself into trouble. Anyway, and Burt Reynolds was in with as a cameo and basically to tie it back to the original version Well, there's a scene in this movie where the guards that they're going to play this football game against are just jacking with them in every way, shape, uh, possible. and possible. Their practice field, which is just this dirt field, they went and they soak it down. It's covered in mud, and it's just a mess, and it really ruins practice for them And Adam Sandler gives this great speech, and they go out, and they just play in the mud and the water, and they make the best of it. I think there's a lesson there for everybody in this audience. Uh, Because these are people that have nothing but this one goal. And they're not going to let adversity stand in the way of it. you know. And it might be a fanciful movie and all, but it's a good movie, and I recommend it highly. I think actually it's one of the movies where I think the remake was actually better than the original. That's not usually the case. So I I recommend that. Now, here's the funny story. So we had this DVD and a few other DVDs that are placed in Arkansas way, way, way back when, before we actually lived there, when it was just our little bug out and vacation place. And uh, I'm up there with my wife and my son. And we're gonna put a movie in, which putting a movie in is like giving my wife a value. No matter how much she wants to see it, she usually goes to sleep if it's evening time, especially if it's dark outside. So we put the movie in, she's laying on the couch, my son and I are sitting on the floor watching the movie, and this scene comes on, and all of a sudden she's singing. She's asleep singing. And we finally she kind of like woke up and caught herself so wondering what the hell's going on. But she was singing the song in her sleep she heard it on the movie. This gets funnier. This gets funnier. Uh, <laughs> so it was almost a year later. We were back up in Arkansas. And of course that DVD still there. And she's still never seen the whole movie. So this time she's going to make it through the movie. So she makes it through this scene. But right when the teams are actually going to play. And they're on the bus headed down to the field. They put on that old song Spirit in the Sky. And my wife is knocked out of sleep, same movie, same situation. All of a sudden, we, he, my son and I hear her go, ba-da, ba ba, ba, ba ba da like that, and she's clapping her hands. She does this for about two bars and then wakes herself up again. And she, this, this lends credence to the concept that even when people are in comas and things like that, it might make sense to talk to them because your hearing is the last thing to kind of fade out in your consciousness. So, it's just, I thought it was a funny story, and it also brings up that movie. So, here's the deal. Today I have a link to my, like a montage from that movie with this song in the show notes. I also have a link to a clip of the actual speech that San, uh, Sandler gives as his character in this movie, and I think it's, it's kind of inspirational for a lot of the adversity that we deal with all the time. Obviously, from a different standpoint, we're not all a bunch of convicts in prison for a variety of reasons, some minor crimes, some major crimes, but we all come up against adversity. And we all come up against situations where we feel like we just can't, can't do it today. And there always is a way to get it done today. That's a great thought to leave you with on a Friday and with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or if they don't.